0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. And tonight uh, I'm actually quite excited to talk to John Dickey about his new book Blood Brotherhoods. So I've read John's previous work and uh, was suggested to me by Federico Varese recently when I interviewed him that maybe you should ring John and see if he'd be interested in an interview as well. So I thought that was a fantastic idea. So uh, welcome John, how are you? Very good, very good. It's good, It's good. We were just mentioning that uh, you've got the absolute opposite weather to me here in Australia. We've got the hottest March and you've got the coldest March at the same time.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: So that's everything right. balances out in the end. Yep. Uh, I thought we'd start off then with a bit of background about your background personally and yeah. uh, your uh, career, I suppose, and how you've written the previous book and now come to write this particular book that's out now.
1: Hmm. Well, um, I'm professor of Italian studies at University College London, um, and I've followed a pretty traditional academic career path in the sense that I I started off as a linguist, I did French and Italian at Oxford, um, but gradually as I did my PhD and as, you know, began my research career proper, I be, I've become more and more of a historian, if you like, although I still you know, teach literature and cinema and opera and also anything to do with Italy, basically. Um, and I, I like to think that some of that sort of sense of the breadth of interest finds its way into my um, historical writing, even in as narrowly focused a subject as as organised crime. Yep,
0: yep. Um, so, do you? I assume then you're actually doing the research you do for these books in Italian.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, of course, you... you um, I mean, uh, you, you, just everything, all of the material is Italian, really. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I deliberately, so far in my writing on the Mafia, I've deliberately stayed away to get kept a very Italian focus mm. because that's the part of the story that um, the rest of the world doesn't know that that, that is most mysterious. I mean, uh, it's most obvious in the sort of, popular literature on the mafia in the United States, you get this sort of image of, uh, for example, Sicily is just this island full of peasants, and then a volcano went off, and they all went off to America and became gangsters, you know, Uh, and the, the Italian part of the story is always a kind of preamble, as if these groups lacked sophistication and lacked organisation and lacked business now before they go to the United States, and that's, that's simply nonsense. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm a specialist on Italy, that's what I know about, and, um, you know, the material I use is all from our Italian archives and a host of other Italian sources.
0: Great, great. And uh, the first book, do you want to just set the scene with uh, the previous, sorry, all the previous publications to this one?
1: Uh, yeah flight on this Austria, um, a history of the Sicilian mafia came out in two thousand and four and what it did was bring together some of the amazing work uh, done on the history of the Sicilian mafia by the leading italian uh, scholars work that hadn 't really made the breakthrough i mean i i, I was kind the main reason I wrote it is that I was astonished by the ignorance of people surrounding me. You know, I knew this literature. It has been part of my research life uh, for a long time since the time of my PhD, uh, and I knew what a what an extraordinary story this was. That you know, the the way that. The, the deaths of Falcone and Borsellino, Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino, the two history-making anti-mafia magistrates, they were murdered in 1992, essentially because they proved that the Sicilian mafia exists in Italy. It might seem astonishing, but Italy did not have a legal precedent for the existence of the Sicilian mafia until 1992. And the Mafia was so annoyed about this legal precedent that it murdered Falcone in Borsellino. And that hist- extraordinary historical moment opened up vast new avenues of research, and a whole new picture of the history of the Sicilian Mafia was emerging. Um, and it really was largely, it, completely inaccessible to any but, anybody but specialists um, who could read Italian. So a very narrow field, and uh, and it seemed to me such a powerful story, such an important story, perhaps one of the most important stories in the history of uh, of Italy, uh, that it needed telling. Now, with this um, most recent book, um, Blood Brotherhoods, which is actually confusingly called Mafia Brotherhoods in the paperback edition, um, I wanted to turn my focus... Th- th- this is a much more research-driven book. I hope it's as readable as Cosa Nostra was. Well, um, yes, I'll, I'll say that to you. That I have <laughs> It definitely that, is. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the idea was to you know, really try and get people excited about the front line of mafia research. And a lot of that research is done by me. A lot of it also done by... Um, Italian experts in the field um, so it was a kind of bringing together of some of the frontline stuff to try and do something that nobody had ever done before which was to look at the history of Italy's three major criminal organizations that is the Sicilian Mafia now called Cosa Nostra, the Calabrian Mafia now called Andrangheta and the Camorra the Mafia of Naples and its hinterland Try and tell those three stories together to see what there was to learn. And my view, and I think, I hope the book bears this out, is that actually you really can't understand key moments of this whole history, the whole reason why Italy has this big problem with organized crime, unless you tell those stories in parallel, unless you keep the narrative moving uh, between the three. So that was the objective.
0: Yep, yep. Well, maybe then the best thing to do is actually start off and deal with them in turn and talk about their origins because whilst they are separate, they hadn't collaborated in how they got themselves together, there are, I think, a fair amount of similarities in the basic structure of how they developed. So let's start with the obvious one and start with uh, Cosa
1: Nostra. In a way, actually, it's probably better because Cosa Nostra is actually the exception Mm Mm-hmm to the rule set by the other two and in a way it's easier to understand the other two first and then we can understand why how Cosa Nostra began and that, and, and therefore also understand what made Cosa Nostra or the Sicilian Mafia particularly powerful for so long and particularly mm-hmm. dangerous. Well, I'll defer to your wisdom on that one. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, the the, the the way, the place to start is the prison system. The place to start for the Camorra and the Indanglith is the prison system. Um, it's pretty clear that before Italian unification, uh, Italy was unified in 1860, or the south was unified to the north in 1860, Garibaldi and all that. Before that, the prison system in southern Italy, in the kingdom of the two Sicilies, was run from within by gangsters, Um, It was that effectively the prison authorities subcontracted the running of the prison system to the toughest prisoners. And we have lots of testimonies from reliable testimonies from political prisoners, people who campaigned for the unification of Italy. So in other words, campaigned for the abolition of the kingdom of the two Sicilies, which ruled southern Italy and Sicily before unification conspirators, patriots, the founding fathers of the Italian nation, if you like, and who would get imprisoned for their beliefs and for their actions. And they tell us about this thing called the Honored Society, which ran the prison system from within, uh, which had rituals, which had... um, Uh, a division of labor, you know, there was the man who collected the money from the the protection payments from the other prisoners There were the bosses and lieutenants and so on and so forth, had a structure, had rituals like, um, you know, you resolve disputes by ceremonial knife fighting. There were internal tribunals. Um, This organization... Worked with a methodology which is identical, with, albeit within the prison system, identical to the methodology used by criminal organisations in Italy today. That is, it's a mixture of extortion, uh, you know, protection payments, and trafficking, because these organisations also corrupted guards and so on, so they were able to control the traffic in all sorts of things from outside the prison. Into the prison, whether they be weapons, or drink, or food, or clothes, or books, or candles, whatever it might mean, they dealt in that kind of contraband. Now, um, there are two. That leaves us with two, a number of questions to answer. After that, is how is it that prison gangsters became so organised? took on this unusual form of a sworn secret society with oaths and so on and so forth. Because we know that, you know, this kind of thing has been going on in prisons ever since prisons existed. But why the secret society model? And the second question is, how did they get out of the prison and into the outside world? And the answer to both of those is politics, is revolutionary politics. Um, in southern Italy, the process of unifying Italy was the process of overthrowing uh, an autocratic regime, an absolute monarchy. And to it was therefore a violent process, a process marked by revolution and counter-revolution. And the conspirators who made Italy needed revolutionary muscle, Where did they find that revolutionary muscle? They found it among the criminal classes. They couldn't rely on the police. They couldn't rely on, in most cases, they couldn't rely on the army. So they drew on prisoners. They needed allies among the criminal classes. So they forged a bond. A bond was forged between Italy's future ruling class and the toughest criminals, often when they met in prison. Now, the other interesting thing is that many of the the, the unification Italy and southern Italy was also a question of conspiracy, of secret societies. That's how you did politics in an absolute regime. You needed the bond of secrecy between fellow conspirators because there were spies everywhere. So you organized yourself like the Freemasons. And that Freemasonic model is what the criminals adopted to become an honoured society. If you want a handy definition of what a mafia is, it is a Freemasonry of criminals, a Freemasonry of murderers. It's very straightforward. Um, and, but so it, it's both a network and a hierarchical organisation uh, based on the model of the Freemasonry.
0: So when you say the and, model of the Freemasonry, you, you're talking about secrecy and rituals.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, the more the higher you rise in the organization, the more secrets you get access to and so on. All of that Masonic stuff, you know, and the Freemasons have got their uh, hokey version of their own history, these myths of origin and so on. And so so too have the mafias, they've all got these myths about where they came from and all of those myths date from this period in the middle of the 19th century, early middle of the 19th century when the mafias were born. Do you want to tell the story of the three knights? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always wanted to begin a book with once upon a time, and this was (laughs) a chance. So the story, the once upon a time at the beginning of the book is the story of three knights, Osso, Mastrosso, and Carcagnosso. And the three knights were brothers, their sister was raped, by a Spanish nobleman. They fled Spain, took refuge on the Sicilian island of Favignana, and there, according to the legend, spent 29 years making up the rules of the honoured society. And the three knights went to different parts of Italy to found the three branches of the honoured society. Uh, the, the Camorra in Naples, the Mafia in Sicily, and the ndrangheta in Calabria. Um, now, that, that that myth tells us a number of... It, it is obviously about as historically true as the tale of the three bears, um, but it does... It's a myth of origin that first emerges in the early 1890s when the Andrangheta is emerging. It's the Andrangheta's foundation myth. Uh, that tells us that history counts for these organizations. They have a sense of collective... A strong sense of collective identity that these myths help articulate. Um, and it also shows us the way that they all share a language. They share a language that has its roots in that crossover between criminals and Freemasons. A good example, the best example, I mean, I mean the name honored society itself, all of them have, at one time or another have called themselves the honored society. Uh, the word, uh, which, uh, is taken to mean the sort of code of silence, actually derives from uh, umirta or umilta, the word for humility, um, uh, sort of absorbed into Southern Italian dialects, which is a key Masonic concept, that humility, submission and so on, submission to the code. Um, So that shared language in some ways tells us about the the shared origins of these organizations the sh- the way they emerged at the same time from this revolutionary conspiracy now of course saying that they were they emerged from the violent conspiratorial politics of Italian unification. doesn't mean that these organizations were in any way idealistic. I mean, when you follow the story, you realize, of course, that they were uh, playing one side off against the other. They were selling themselves the highest bidder. They were crooks. They were crooks before and they were crooks afterwards. And, and they were in it for what they could get for themselves. Uh, But it's at that point that they learned how important politics is, and that's it's at that point that they built an alliance with elements within the Italian ruling class that hasn't been broken to this day. Now, the Sicilian Mafia, I mentioned, is the exception to this. It shares some of the same language, it shares the same method, and so on and so forth, and it was very important in the prison system. But... We've now been able to reconstruct the biographies of a number of different mafia bosses, early mafia bosses from Western Sicily. And the one thing they had in common is that they spent little, if any time, in prison. They were already, it's the more, they made contact with the conspirators. They were already powerful and violent men, and they made contact with the conspirators outside prison system and one of the reasons for this is that they were they came from one of the wealthiest parts of sicily they were involved in the one of the wealthiest industries in um uh, excuse me one second one of the wealthiest industries in um uh, sicily which was lemon groves citrus fruit Around Palermo was estimated to be the most valuable agricultural land in Europe. Sicily had a virtual natural monopoly on citrus fruit. And and citrus fruit is a high-investment, high-risk agribusiness, and it's very vulnerable to the kind of vandalism and protection rackets that the mafia specializes in. So the mafiosi were already very powerful men. You know, the origins of the Camorra in Naples are in the slums of the poorest parts of Naples. The origins of the mafia are in the orange groves of some of the wealthiest parts of Sicily. Uh, Early experts on the mafia referred to them as, in in the 1870s, referred to them as middle-class criminals. So, you know, when we see that, you know, consultant neurosurgeons and things like that today and high-level entrepreneurs and politicians are involved with the mafia, today we shouldn't be surprised or shocked because that ability to cross between the social classes has always been what the Sicilian mafia is good at. I mean, that's what the, 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 the Masonic style of organization is also very, very good at. My, my, my grandfather was a Freemason And he laid cobblestones in Edinburgh. He was a a working man. But at the same time, you know, the sponsors of the Freemasonry, its highest uh, officials, are members of the nobility and even the royal family and so on. Um, So the the Freemasonry cuts across uh, between social classes. And the Mafia does exactly the same thing.
0: Right, right. So um, what's the difference in, uh, if we go down to Calabria, is there yeah. any differences there? Because one of the themes that you talk about too is that the Calabrians have this sort of exceptional circumstance. I believe it was the Calabrians have a stronger familial ties in their
1: organization. Yeah. yeah. Now that is certainly true of the ndrangheta today. Um, it is closely rooted in Family. But my research suggests, and this is a new finding, I mean, you know, it's yet to be, if you like, tested by other scholars having a look at the same material, um, is that that family, that the the Indrangata learnt quite late in its career, I put it between the two world wars, to make crime a family business. Mm -hmm. Normally people assume, ah, you've got this society, Calabria, where family is very, very important, and the mafias, the, the ndrangheta somehow grew out of that. I think the opposite is true. The ndrangheta learned, as it got more powerful, as the bosses sought to hand their power down through the generations, their power and wealth, as it sought to disguise itself as part of the ruling class, the ndrangheta became more family-oriented. Now, the reason I think that is that all of the early ndrangheta bosses, almost all of them were pimps. Uh, profiting was, from prostitution was one of their, their staple businesses. While we find the Sicilian Mafia has never, ever been involved in prostitution, very interestingly, even the police in the 19th century said it's really clear, mafia and pimps are two entirely separate categories.
0: Which them apart from their uh, migrating cousins. Uh,
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, lucky Luciano, um, case in point. Uh, It's a rule that they had to learn. Uh, And the reason why they do it is basically what we also know about the Sicilian Mafia, and here there's new evidence in my book about this. Right back in the 1860s, they were already involved in dynastic marriages. Dynastic marriages as in, we're two Mafia dons, Rather than go to war, let my daughter marry your son and we'll make an alliance. And then our children will have more wealth and more power and so on. It goes on through the generations. They, they married. They had a whole dynastic politics for exactly the same reasons as the monarchs of medieval Europe. You know, exactly the same reasons. Make peace, make alliances and, your, you know, continue the dynastic line. The Ndrangita didn't do that, or rather it only learnt to do that, it seems to me, between the two wars. It learnt to do it in a sort of Darwinian process of, you know, the fight for survival, uh, one gang against another, and of course against the police, because the police gave the Ndrangita quite a hard time early in its career. Just to tie up the loose end of the emergence of the Indrangheta. The Indrangheta comes out of the prison system. That's pretty clear. But it comes out a generation later. It comes out in the 1880s. It's got exactly the same structure. I mean, I I can't go into the detail of the evidence, but it's pretty clear from lots and lots of trial documentation that that's what happens. Indrangheta bosses emerge from the prison system and start establishing their protection rackets, their business interests, in the outside world, in the 1880s. Why the 1880s? Here, it's, you know, we can't be absolutely certain, but it seems to me that the key thing is that that is the point when Italy begins to democratise. Politics, um, the, the, the vote spreads to more people, the stakes in politics become much higher, the demand for violence, the usefulness of violence in, you know, getting votes together in intimidating your opponents and so on and so forth uh, becomes much, much more important. I think that's where it's, you know, so once again, it's the link between politics and um, organised crime that seems to me to be decisive in the emergence of the Indrangheta. So there was a
0: mutual relationship. The politicians needed the muscle. The, the organised criminals needed the support. And it really did... Sp- Work for them too,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you must remember this is very often a uh, a very intimate relationship. I mean, you know, in one of the cases I studied, the former mayor of uh, this town of Africo uh, or village of Africo, two of his sons were two of the leading bosses of the Indrangata. They've been they served time in prison for rape and and. Other forms of physical violence, and when they came out, they set up, you know, the Indranga. They set up uh, what, it, what is now called the Indranga um, locally. So, you know, that's a very intimate relationship between, of, you know, politics to to organised crime. Mm, right, now I want
0: to really move on to one of the characters who's on the other side of the scale, the guy who's actually fighting, we were just mentioning before we started recording the interview, and I will let you say his name, because I say, I've done a couple of Italian lessons and I will remember <laughs> the name, so...
1: <laughs> Ermanno San Giorgi, his name is San Giorgi Yep, and he's a bit of the hero,
0: the white knight I suppose, if ever there is one in the book
1: do you want to just recount his experiences? Absolutely, he's an extraordinary man. I mean, he—he's um, not from the south. He's born in Romagna, in the sort of north–strike centre of Italy. Um, he joins the police. He's a great patriot. Uh, the unificate. He joins uh, the Italian police when Italy is unified, um, and it's the. The police is his life. It's the cause of his promotion up the social scale. He eventually becomes... You know, he started off as a humble clerk and he eventually becomes the youngest chief of police in Italy, you know, covered with honours and so on. And he spends a lot of his career, he visits again and again the hotspots in the history of organised crime at key moments. Just to give you... One example, it's almost certainly due to San Giorgi's police work that for the first time late in 1875, the police discovered the Mafia's initiation ritual, the famous, you know, that people may have seen on The Sopranos or whatever, where you you take the initiate into a darkened room and you prick his finger, his trigger finger, and drip the blood. On a playing card-sized image of a saint, and then burn burn it while you swear your oath of allegiance to the mafia. And San Giorgi was the policeman who discovered that in the 1870s. He also, you know, has to deal with the Camorra and with the um, uh, with the, the Sicilian mafia. Very late um, in the in uh, in his career, right. His last posting is to Boladmo, where he arrives right in the middle of a crisis. Now, he, he exemplifies some very important, very important things, which is that we mustn't forget that there has always been, Italy has always fought the Mafias, ineffectively, with inadequate tools. Um, you know, in the book I tell the numerous difficulties that San Giorgi faced. Uh, you know, he gets accused completely falsely uh, by judges who are complicit with the mafia. He gets accused of having dealings with the mafia, irony of ironies. Um, huge difficulties, but nonetheless, there is a constant repression, if you like, attempt to repress these organizations. It never lasts very long, it's never deep, but it does do a hugely important thing for the historian it gives us evidence. Mm. And Georgie and people like him were the ones who really knew what was going on. The classic pattern is that the police—this is why we never knew that the mafia, the Sicilian mafia, existed until 1992, when the evidence, once you look back, is there everywhere. Um, it's because, if because the mafias are secret societies, the evidence about them has to come from inside, has to be an internal member who tells you what's going on and how it works. But of course, when, and the mafias, all of the mafias are constantly generating people who are the losers in mafia wars, who go to the police and say, look, I'm a member of this organization. It's a secret society. We're a bit like the Freemasons, only we're criminals. We work like this and this and this. I'll tell you all about it. And the police go, yeah, great, fantastic. But then, these guys get persuaded in one way or another to shut up, you know, whether it's with a bullet or blandishments or, or, or however the judiciary were infiltrated. So the trial evidence is undermined The you know, the, the evidence of mafia turncoats is regarded as unreliable because they're, you know, they're criminals. Why, you know, why on earth would they tell the truth and so on and so forth. So all of this evidence builds up with the police and then, Gets nowhere when it comes to the courts, and I, you know, again, I've demonstrated why that is with the, the level of infiltration of the magistrature uh, by organised crime. Um, so that's where we—that's where historians work, and that's why, in a way, you know, San Giorgi is my personal hero because it's people like him that that not only, you know, and not only was he a very brave and very um, Honest and intelligent policeman, uh, rigorous policeman, but he was also he's also what makes my job possible.
0: That's right. Well, he was a good public servant. He recorded everything. I teach public Absolutely. service skills, and I always say, cover your ass, record everything, put <laughs> right. it on paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah.
1: He, that's what he was. That's what he did. Yeah.
0: Yes. Well, it's a fine tradition. Um, I'm just working out where we should go next. It's it's there's incredible amounts of detail in this book. It's really quite hard to explain that. In one book, you follow three completely different groups who really aren't interrelating, effectively. I mean, they're, in, they, they're related well, to the...
1: They are in the prison system. A con, you, What you've got to remember is that underneath all of this going on the whole time is the control of the prison system, which continues right throughout. Uh, you know, even today, if you get initiated into the Kamara, it happens in prison. You know, ditto. Prison is the... Is the that's where you make your bones. That's where you know. That's the right of passage for entry into these organisations. Very often. Yeah. Uh, so there's that and a lot. What what they also have in common is a relationship with the state, a state where you know the police are relying relying on them to. They're, they're sort of what they call co managing crime with them. You know, they say to the mafia bosses, "Look, we'll let you get on with what you do, just." give us information about, you know, other crimes and so on and so forth. We'll do a deal. Mm. And that deal, character they call it co-managing crime, that deal, you know, apart from people like San Giorgi, goes on, you know, right through the period we're talking about, right through the history of the mafias. Mm. Mm. So There's okay. also a the relationship with politics that we've already talked about. Yeah. So those things are common to all of them. Common to all of them, but you're right. They have very surprisingly different histories. They come from surprisingly different places um, and have very different uh, itineraries through history. Yeah,
0: and they're not really in competition with each other because they're not territorially bound. But they 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 have their own locales and their own culture in that locality.
1: Yeah, we don't get. I mean, there are there's lots of evidence of them fighting amongst each other when they're in prison together, you know, when they, the territory is shared, as it were. But you're right, it's about territory. Mafia wars are usually about territory, and they don't share territory, so why should they go to book war with one another? Civil wars within mafia organizations are much more common. We don't get a war between one um, mafia organization and another until the 1970s, late 1970s. Um, uh, well, that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <My> new... <laughs> um,
0: before we move on to talk about what happens under fascism, You yeah. get to the age of migration in the late 1800s, yeah. early 1900s, and everybody knows about the Sicilians moving to America. Was there much migration out of the other two areas?
1: Yes, there was a great deal. I mean, we, you know, the... the um, we st- there's still an awful lot to learn about that early phase of mafia history in the United States now it's pretty clear that the dominant force the first to arrive the richest, the most powerful the most numerous were the Sicilians um, American Cosa Nostra is a cousin organisation of Sicilian Cosa Nostra um, you know that's the model But it's also clear that that basically Sicilian organization had plenty of members who weren't Sicilian, who were Calabrians, who were uh, Neapolitans, who were from the Neapolitan hinterland and so on. Mm. And also that in some places there were completely autonomous organizations that were much more, for example, in in the coal mines of Pennsylvania, it seems that was a, you know, labor racket run by Calabrians, and that was very much a Calabrian organization. Um, So all of that, the history of those relations between them as organizations um, on American soil still needs to be told. I mean, the history of Italian organized crime in Australia is primarily a Calabrian story. Mm. Uh, Is it something like 600,000 people of Calabrian origin in Australia at the moment? And according to the Ita- Italian magistrates, uh, there are today nine locals of the Andrangatu in Australia. Uh, locals are the cell basic or basic structures of the Andrangatu, and you need four, at least forty-nine people to form a local. So, mm. you know, do your calculations. Yeah. Um, now that history, because the history of the Andrangatu is remains unwritten. You know that we, we know. Comparatively much less about the history of Calabrian organised crime. Uh, you know, it's only now that we're realizing, realizing just how powerful it is, and just how worldwide it is. Without doubt, far more global, far better at spreading its metastases around the globe than than the Sicilians, than Cosa Nostra is. We're only just learning that. So for that reason, we've still yet to construct the history of Italian organized crime in Australia properly. So I would suspect that somewhere we're going to find evidence of these connections going back a long, long way.
0: Right, right. I know from uh, the experiences here in my state, which is Queensland, um, in the cane fields north the italians actually came earlier than they really came to the other parts of australia which was it, yeah. the post war migration was the other parts of australia whereas the cane fields yeah. was uh, probably 20 years earlier and it was the black hand but it was people were actually calling it the black hand because they didn't have another name
1: yeah it was, the was no it was yeah it was calabrians and the interesting thing in that case is that there's, there's evidence that they sent a killer up from sydney Yes. to do somebody away in Queensland and then, you know, he went back, uh, which is a classic pattern. You know, that's one of the reasons why the mafias are not local cells because mm-hmm. it's so useful to be able to, you know, bring in a, a killer from miles away who can then vanish into the night. Uh, or similarly, if you've got somebody on the run, you can send them in, into, into another territory uh, to go into hiding. Um, that sort of thing they've been doing since the since the get-go. Yep,
0: yep. And you'll find um, we have a, a, an automated system for our National Archives. We can search the newspapers online now. When you search for the black hand in Northern mm. Queensland, you get dozens of stories from Sydney and Melbourne, in especially in yeah. the fruit markets of black yeah. hand activity. But it's all mixed up with different ideas of black hand and anarchism because the anarchist groups in America also use the black hand persona as well at different times so there's a lot of confusion as to what's going on yeah um, now I want to move on to uh, the rise of fascism now fascists being fascists can't abide any other organization in the society that they're controlling so they really moved against the organized crime groups across the country
1: yeah I mean the the, the history of the relate we, we you have to deal with this sort of popular perception you know Uh, which is essentially the product of fascist propaganda, which is the idea that fascism was authoritarian and it did away with the mafia. Mm. It came down hard on the mafia and um, the mafia was kind of reintroduced when the Allies arrived uh, from 1943. Now, um, there's a tiny bit of truth in that, in the sense that fascism did mount a major campaign in the late 1920s, second half of the 1920s, against organized crime on all three major fronts, uh, Naples or outside Naples, Sicily and um, uh, and Calabria. But that repression was, we now know, much, much weaker than uh, people had assumed hitherto. Now, the reason they'd assumed it is once that operation was over, fascism declared the problem solved and banned all mention of Mafia stories in the press. So it's no wonder the Mafia people thought the Mafia had vanished because there wasn't any news about it. Um, What we now know is, for example, um, in 1932, to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Mussolini's arrival in power, there was an amnesty declared, and lots of the bosses who'd been banged up in the late nineteen twenties were released. And we've we've now discovered this uh, extraordinary documentation that historian historians in Sicily found that shows us that there was a in secret but um, when fascism was a regime and when it, could, it really had all of the resources of an authoritarian regime, a totalitarian regime at its disposal, there was a second, a much more brutal wave of repression in the 1930s. Um, in the case of Sicily is the most dramatic, this uh, huge report by an inspectorate of police and carabinieri that was set up in 1933. Basically, they said they discovered there was a huge crime wave. Um, they discovered letters from Sicilian mafia bosses saying, okay, now the, the repression's finished, um, we can all get back to doing what we do so well. And they started began again, huge crime wave. So sp- special force of police and carabinieri is formed, they uh, put together this compelling picture of the Mafia, of its structures, of its, you know, identical to today, uh, of, of its modus operandi and so on and so forth. But even then, even with the resources of the totalitarian state, the judiciary again trip up the prosecutions. Very often these prosecutions end up, you know, the witnesses retract to the same old story. The judges are very, um, you know, uh, very finicky, and we end up with a lot of these mafia bosses. You know, some of them get uh, get sentenced, but the organisation as such remains intact and was in very, very good health indeed when the Allies arrived in
0: 1943. Mm. Was, um, there, was there, was there in
1: any the same integration? In the other areas, in Calabria and Campania, yeah.
0: Was there any integration? I mean, if they'd relied for so long on having that close connection with, gov- with government, were they able to get corrupt connections with the fascist? Yeah, um, yeah. Above well, in
1: Sicily, it's, it seems to be uh, more... with In Sicily, effectively what happened is the mafia formed a, an alliance with the traditional landed ruling elite, of Sicily and the traditional landed ruling elite in, in Sicily was hand in glove with the mafia, mm. so that, that that was the that was the the basically the, the alliance that allowed uh, the Sicilian mafia to survive. Right. Um, uh, but yes, there were plenty of cases of infiltration of the fascist state and of the magistrature and, and so on as uh, as before. Mm. Good. Good.
0: Now, look, I've taken up a whole lot of your time tonight, but. Uh, you pointed out in the pre-interview that this is actually volume one of larger work. So do you want to talk about uh, what's coming in volume two?
1: Yes. Um, Due out on the 8th of May, which I think also means the 8th of May in Australia uh, too, Uh, it's called Mafia Republic, and it picks up the story where Mafia Brotherhood stopped. uh, In other words, at uh, the arrival of the Allies the foundation of Italian democracy, the foundation of the Italian Republic in 1946. And it tells the same parallel story of the three major criminal organizations um, as they enter the era of democracy and prosperity. Um, when, When Italy was emerged from the Second World War, the problem of mafia resurfaced, um, because a free press uh, began to operate again. But the widespread assumption was that it was the product of poverty and backwardness. <coughs> Excuse me, that, um, that as soon as Italy managed to develop, as soon as it managed to become a modern economy, um, that these problems would, would vanish like rickets and malaria and, you know, other diseases and cholera and other other symptoms of poverty would vanish. The trouble was the opposite happened, that they were making a fundamental mistake in understanding the mafias. The mafias are modern. Um, they are traditionalist in that they've got their own traditions, but those traditions are modern inventions. The organisation is as modern as the Italian state and they're perfectly well adapted to, as they were in Sicily from the outset, to wealth and to high politics and to democracy. You know, they're not—they're no strangers uh, to uh, all of the things that characterised the post-war period. And the result in the climate of the Cold War, when um, the mafias were able to ally themselves with the ruling. Party, the Christian Democrats. Climate of the Cold War, when the communists were unelectable, so the Christian Democrats effectively ruled without opposition. Was that the Matthews got a free pass, mm. a free pass into an era of spectacular opulence, uh, with the result that you know, uh, uh, in the nineteen eighties, the rule of law came close to collapse, and Italy, southern Italy, came close to becoming a kind of narco state. Um, and Italy's still, now that the Cold War's over and the Christian Democrats have gone, and thanks to the heroic efforts of various investigating magistrates and policemen and so on, we're still we're in a new and much more uncertain era of Mafia history. The Cold War is gone, so all bets are off. Uh, and it's difficult to know where we're headed. There's some very extraordinary, very exciting Developments in recent years. One of them, of course, being the emergence of the Enranged as the the most powerful and the most global and the most secretive mafia. To, you know, just one instance. It's only in an operation in two thousand that went public in two thousand and ten that we discovered that the Enranged has this uh, committee, ruling committee called the Crimine, the Great Crime, the Crime. Uh, which my research indicates goes back to at least the 1920s, 1930s. So all of this time, the Indranga has had this complicated internal political life, uh, a col- you know, with collective representative bodies, uh, and we didn't know about it.
0: So this um, is at a time, too, where academically everyone's writing about how such a body does not exist in the United States, The The old theories of the
1: controlling commission were wrong, but it turns out there was one in Italy. Of course there was. Of course there was. I mean, there's a brilliant book written by Salvatore Lupo, the the leading historian of the uh, Sicilian Mafia, who wrote about the Mafia in America, and he's very, very astute at picking out the... the, Because the history of the Mafias is also the history of the misunderstanding of the Mafias. Mm. And one, only one of, one of those many misunderstandings is the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the serious sociologist who says, well, this idea that there's a sort of, um, you know, the mafia is the multinational of crime or a corporation of crime or it's like, you know, the IBM of, of the underworld is clearly nonsense, poo-poo, you know, um, and it's obvious that if, if you're if you're looking for the mafia and your idea of what it, your template of what it is is IBM, well, it's like looking for an elephant with a microscope. You're not going to be able to see it. Uh, if you know what we now know, the mafia is. It is an organisation. It's not IBM. The, 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 as I said at the beginning, the thing to keep in mind is it's like the Freemasons. It's it's a network with hierarchical components to it, hierarchical elements to it. It's got its own internal political life. It's constantly fissured by civil wars and factions and so on and so forth. Um, And the evidence for the existence, not just of the Sicilian mafia of that kind, but also the Indrangata and until the First World War, the Honoured Society of Naples, is overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. It's not a myth. Mm. Um, and um, in some parts of the world, uh, Australia included, uh, sociology's got a bit of catching up to do.
0: Yes. Well, um, there's very little work on the history of organised crime in Australia at all, and it's all being done by journalists. And you know, yeah. I, I thank the journalists for writing the books they're writing, but they're not doing academic work. But, yeah, sure. Yeah, so leaves a lot of room for myself and my PhD students. which is Yes, great. exactly. <laughs> But on that note, look, I want to thank you very much for spending some time with us tonight. It's been a great Uh, pleasure. Or this morning, I should say, in your case. But um, Mm -hmm. I look forward to talking to you again when you get your next book out.